Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. On Commons People this week, we're all in lockdown. I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. The economy is on life support. The public need reassurance and they need certainty. And the government needs to give them both. And Jeremy Corbyn takes his last PMQs. Just to let him know, my voice will not be stilled. I'll be around, I'll be campaigning, I'll be arguing, and I'll be demanding justice for the people of this country and indeed the rest of the world. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. We are now officially in lockdown, but we're not going to let that stop us. So joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. Where are you? I'm up in the attic, well away from the dog. <laughs> and we've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hi, Arj. Hi. Hey, and you're at home again. I'm in East Finchley, yes. Slowly yeah. getting cabin fever. <laughs> yeah, as am I a few miles away in North London. And we're delighted to be joined by Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth. Hello, how are you? Hi, John. I'm very well. How are you? How's the lockdown treating you? Day one, I suppose, for you. Well, yes, I'm, I'm back in Leicester. I'm in my... Uh, little back room study uh, with with, uh, with the wallpaper that everyone's teasing me for on uh, on Twitter where I'm doing my Skype interviews and I'm I'm home here in Leicester with my my two kids my my six year old and, and my eight year old trying to homeschool them I think on day one I was excited about this considering myself a sort of Socrates like figure setting up a sort of school <laughs> to nurture them and. Now I'm basically like, yeah, they can have a bit longer on the iPad, and it's only afternoon. As they leave me alone. <laughs> well, uh, as we... that out. <laughs> I'll get more Twitter criticism. <laughs> well, yeah, as we've just been talking about, Boris Johnson has ordered an official lockdown of the UK to slow the spread of coronavirus, closing non-essential shops and banning gatherings of more than two people, with the police given power to enforce the new rules. There are some early signs that the unprecedented approach taken so far might be working, but the government is still facing questions about its testing programme and the provision of protective clothing for NHS staff. Meanwhile, horrifying death figures continue to come out of Italy and Spain. More than half a million people have volunteered to help the NHS, and even Prince Charles now has the virus. Let's remind ourselves of the Prime Minister's extraordinary address to the nation this week. I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Because the critical thing we must do to stop the disease spreading between households, that is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person, and travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. Uh, Paul, this had to happen, didn't it? 
Well, we were always told it was going to happen at some point, this lockdown. The question is when. Um, and it will be for some future Royal Commission or public inquiry to work out exactly whether it was a delay that cost lives or saved lives. So, But that's for the future. I think what's interesting is that um, that address to the nation is watched by, what, 20-odd million people. It's a massive reach. Um, was finally the moment where the government realised it had to communicate properly and directly to the people. Um, up until that point, it was, you know, if you happen to see uh, on the evening news, and not everyone watches the evening news, if you happen to see a, a clip of the Prime Minister at his press conference, or if you saw a bit of it online, you might have got a bit of the message. But um, until that actually big moment on Monday... There wasn't anything that was really serious, unlike Ireland, where you've got some fantastic visual messaging about being two metres away from people, or as we should say in Britain for older people, six feet away from people. A lot of old people don't understand what a metre is, for crying out loud. Uh, you know, they're still lagging behind on the basics like that. That's why you're getting parks finally closing, like last night, Victoria Park in London was closing because people weren't observing the rules. Um, whereas other parks, are, like Richmond Park near me, people are observing the rules. But I think that's it just shows how mixed the messaging has been, how bad the messaging has been um more widely though i think it just shows that the government are, are forced to do things several days after they want to do them you know they'll sit they'll rule something out one day and then the next thing you know three or four days later it happens so i think that's really bad for confidence because people say well can we trust what you're saying uh, john do you want to come in on that i mean you you've been calling for for various measures and, and eventually a lot of them have been brought in you, you've kind of been largely supportive of the government so far but also you've got gradually more critical over time, it seems. What? Why is that? Well, from day one, back when this um, uh, crisis, um, well, we we could see we're heading into a crisis. Uh, back in January, we've always been keen to support the government in the drastic actions that we would have to take. But we've always and we've always wanted to be constructive uh, and speak up and voice people's concerns in an, a in a responsible way. Uh, so I was pleased, for example, that the government announced uh, essentially a, lo- a lockdown on uh, on um, uh, Monday of this week. I mean, I don't think a lockdown is the best way to describe it because it means different things to, in, in different countries. Mm-hmm. But I think we broadly know what we're talking about for the purposes of of of, uh, of this. Uh, um, you know, and we and I had called for it earlier in the day, and the, the week before I had called for the pubs and restaurants to be closed, and then the government. Um, closed pubs and restaurants, and indeed, the week before that, I was calling for mass gatherings to be uh, suspended. So that we've been raising our concerns, we've been probing the government, we've been pushing the government, but we're trying to be, and I hope people would think we're being constructive. And where we raise issues, and where we raise questions, and where we say, "Look, come on, you need to be sorting X and Y out," I'm doing that not to undermine Matt Hancock or not to create some false dividing line so that I can be seen to have scored a political point. We're doing that because we all want the national effort to defeat this virus to succeed because we all have a <laughs> a mortal interest in seeing us, seeing that national effort to, to succeed. But, that you know, when we've got doctors saying to us we still don't have the protective equipment delivered, when lots of experts, including the World Health Organization, are saying, why isn't the UK testing more? And when when you've got this kind of confusion around who should go to work and who shouldn't go to work, I think it's legitimate for us to raise those concerns, to press the government, but obviously not be alarmist or sensationalist about it. Yeah. um, Rachel, you've been watching the the boffins this week. Uh, How long is this going to last? Well, the 
PM said on Monday that um, he would review the measures he announced in three weeks. And we found out a little bit um, during the Commons Science and Technology Committee yesterday just what he was basing that on. Um, Professor Neil Ferguson, who's the, the top epidemiologist at um, Imperial College London, he said that he expected the peak pressure on um, the NHS ICU beds to be in two and a half to three weeks. And then if everybody followed the measures as set out, that, that may start to decline. But he said it would be really key when it when we got to, to that three-week point, the, the decisions made then on testing and in particular tracing would be really, really, really important. Um, he, he said in particular that um, he mentioned like hotspots or so where we've had um, people come into the country with the infection, they were starting to map those areas as, as hotspots. And he mentioned Derby in particular and Nottingham in particular. Um, so I, I, we'll see whether the, the measures are reviewed, but he said basically long term that the only only serious long term exit strategy was a vaccine. And we we know that's some 12, potentially 18 months away. So so nobody really knows when the measures are going to end. Yeah, John, it seems like the, the key in, in at least relaxing some of these measures is to massively ramp up testing and then isolate people who have had contact with infected people. I mean, countries like South Korea and Japan kind of did this from the start. Were, were the government slow to wake up to this? And, and were the opposition actually slow to wake up to this as well? Because it's not something I believe you guys were calling for right at the start. Well, we've always been trying to be supportive of the government. And and, and we understand the immense pressures the government uh, are under. And of course, this is a new virus. And uh, uh, we know a lot more about it now, but in the early days back in January, we knew very little about it and we didn't know how how it would um, transmit, uh, although there were clear warning signs. Uh, I think it's true that uh, the government, it appears, seemed to take their foot off the gas on expanding testing, and we need to understand why because the World Health Organization is very clear. Lockdowns are important, but in and of themselves, they're something of a blunt tool unless they are combined with rigorous testing in the wider community and contact tracing, which is why we're urging the government to, to massively upscale capacity, although we're hearing rumours from labs on the ground that there's shortages of kits, shortages of chemicals, and there seems to be some hints of that, I thought, from the Chief Medical Officer's remarks yesterday when he talked about global global bottlenecks. And that sort of brings me to my next and broader point. We are not going to defeat this virus by a UK-only response. China is not going to defeat it by a China-only response. South Korea, who is probably the most successful country in the world, is not going to completely defeat this by a South Korea response. It is a global health emergency. And a bit like how in 2008, uh, Gordon Brown, who I was very fortunate to work for, was the driving force behind bringing together a global response to the 2008 crisis. We're going to need a similar global response to this crisis, a global response to make sure that medical supplies, whether that's chemicals, testing kits, ventilators, very much in the news today, are distributed fairly and properly across the world. But also that when we've got antiviral drugs that we know have a, uh, a, a curative uh, impact, and indeed, when we genuinely finally get that vaccine, which is still 12 months away at least, 
we have to have a global response to ensure it's distributed across the world because there's no point all those in the United Kingdom suppressing the virus and perhaps even getting the vaccines if we've not dealt with the virus elsewhere because the globe will not have defeated coronavirus and we just run the risk of it springing up again. So we need a global coordinated response. And that is lacking at the moment in the world of Donald Trump and the, the, the games between the US and China and so on. And that is my big, big worry. We've no, we need a kind of Gordon Brown sort of driven G20 style response like we had in 2008. And the G20 are having a phone call today, but there's one thing that came up in the lobby briefing this morning was that the government has opted out of this EU procurement scheme for things like ventilators, tests and so on. And the kind of reason that they're, they're giving is, well, we're outside the EU, but actually we were offered a place in this scheme. Do you think we should have signed up to that? Yes, of course. Of course. And I actually raised this in the House Commons on Monday with ministers. And the minister just said, well, you know, there's other EU, not every EU country's in it. So, I mean, as if that was a credible, you know, satisfactory answer, I didn't think it was. When clear, clearly we've got a shortage of ventilators, clearly we've got a shortage of testing kits and the, rele the relevant uh, chemicals. There's clearly problems in the global supply chain for, for medical supplies. Uh, uh, I would have thought we should be cooperating in every international uh, scheme body going because because why would we be hindering ourselves by by not cooperating in them? Jeremy Hunt, the, who's, who's now obviously chair of the Health Select Committee, he's kind of made a lot of important interventions throughout this. Do you think, um, given he's got more of a an internationalist outlook, um, given his he was a Remainer, for example, um, do you think he would have been a a, a better PM at this time? <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn, that's <laughs> I was campaigning for to be made Prime Minister, obviously. I mean, but I think Jeremy Hunt has been very brave in speaking out the way he has spoken out because he's he's been very critical of his own party's handling of this, but I think very constructive in the suggestions that he is making. And I know when, when he was elected chair of the Health um, Select Committee, there was a lot of scepticism about whether he would take his responsibility seriously or whether he would really hold government ministers to account. Well... I think, in fairness, he's shown throughout this crisis that he's prepared to ask the tough questions of his own party, even if that makes it very awkward for some of the leading figures in his own party. John, I was going to ask, going to ask you a bit about that, actually. You've, you've been across the dispatch box with both Hancock and Hunt. You've had a long experience facing both of them. It's always the way when you're out of office to sort of, it's an easier hit. I'm, former ministers are always, I remember Jack Straw, it's always easier for him to have a go at his own government once he's out of office. Mm. But once you're in that job, what do you think Hancock's doing behind the scenes? We hear, we hear reports that he, him and Gove aren't exactly on the same page, that Hancock wanted more action and Gove wanted a slower response. Um, how do you weigh up Hancock versus Hunt right now? Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, avenue you're inviting me down, but I'm, Go on. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's... I'll uh, lead you by the hand down the avenue. It's easily with my <laughs> approach of, trying, of not wanting to undermine... Uh, uh, at, at, at this time of national crisis. I mean, they're, they're very different politicians. Of course, Jeremy Hunt was health secretary for a long, long time. So was uh, very, very, very um, knowledgeable in as much... That's not to say Matt Hancock isn't knowledgeable. I just mean he had huge institutional memory for having been the health secretary for, su for such a long time. But look, in fairness to Matt Hancock, he is keeping me informed. We've had, we've had meetings with him and his officials. Uh, I've actually also had meetings with Boris Johnson as it happens. So, uh, you know, I think 
they are behaving as they should behave towards an opposition spokesperson at a time of national crisis like this? Yeah, there, there is this cross-party working going on. There have been some calls for a unity government. Is that something you'd get behind, John? Well, I don't think we need a unity government, but I think because it's important that I, as a, the Shadow Health Secretary, I, I, I have the freedom and flexibility to ask the tough questions. Now, actually, behind closed doors, I've been um, uh, tougher in some of the meetings than perhaps I, you know, I might be in, in public, I suppose. But I think it's still important that we get the opportunity to ask questions of ministers because, and by asking questions and putting forward a constructive alternative, you know, we are improving our nation's response to this crisis. And I think that's an important part of parliamentary democracy. So I don't think, I, I think these sort of national unity sort of gossip, gossip, and I, I mean, I don't think it'd be an offer anyway, in truth, but, um, and, you know, and I'm breaking that rule that, you know, we're always told by spin doctors, don't answer hypothetical questions. Um, but um, uh, I don't think it's an offer anyway. But I think I think we just need mature parliamentary democracy and the opportunity to have these important discussions that we've been having uh, directly as well. And do you think, John, that um, maybe the uh, the leader of the opposition should be invited into COBRA just as you know, um, Sadiq Khan is, just as Nicola Sturgeon is, and if not in COBRA, should there not be a more uh, Obviously, no, no one's in your party is really calling for a, a government of national unity. They wouldn't necessarily want to be in this government. They wouldn't necessarily want a, a ministerial post. But how about some sort of structure where you could have a committee which would include key opposition figures advising the government and sitting on a sort of coronavirus committee? Well, I mean, these things are all, uh, I know they're all sort of floating around and being suggested. But I, I would come back in fairness. We have been in to see ministers. I've been in. See Matt Hancock, our attorney, Shadow Attorney General Shami Chakrabarti sat down with ministers. Obviously, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and I went into Downing Street to meet uh, uh, Boris Johnson. There, are, there is uh, discussions that have been going on, and I'm sure those discussions would continue. I don't think we necessarily need a sort of formal committee for the sake of it. I'm not sure what that would add when, when serious, grown-up, sensible discussions are going on all the time. Um, Rachel, I knew, know you had a question about Shami Chakrabarti. Oh yeah, um, was it? I know you've had quite a lot. You've on in the shadow cabinet. You've got a lot of really strong civil liberties advocates, and was was it quite hard to bring them on side when you were making the arguments for you know school closures or um, you know the the for a lockdown to be enforced? Well, we're all all of us are strong advocates for civil liberties and human rights, but surely the most important human right is the right to life. And if we genuinely thought, as we did, that uh, not moving to some of these more stringent, far-reaching social distancing measures on a compulsory basis puts at risk lives. Then we would have had a we had a duty to speak out on that front. Now, on the, on, the, on the emergency legislation, obviously, none of us came into politics to restrict people's individual liberties. But I think, in the circumstances, we all understand why we those those laws had to be put on the statute book although we we were we did argue for safeguards like a six monthly review we argued that it should be compliant with the human rights act which it which it was so uh, and we all look forward to the day when we can take those powers off the statute book because nobody wants those powers on the statute book for, for the long the medium to long term um, John, just before we move on, I wanted to ask, uh, wanted to ask, come back on something you, you mentioned about the, what you're picking up from labs around the country about tests. Um, you said there's there's a lack of chemicals and, and something else. Could you 
give a bit more detail on that? Yeah, well, I'm just, I mean, I, I, as I'm sure um, journalists get as well, we're getting, we get inundated with reports on what's happening on the front line from staff and asking us to speak up. And that's why, coming back to the uh, uh, earlier point about national unity governments and so on, it's important that we as the opposition uh, have have the opportunity to speak out on the concerns that people are raising with us. Because even if, otherwise people will feel that they haven't got a voice. And if we're getting, you know, I'm getting reports from people who work in biology labs that uh, that, that there's a shortage in some of the chemicals and some of the, uh, some of the kits, which I'm trying to get to the bottom of. But as I say, it was kind of hinted at, I thought yesterday, when the CMO said there is a global bottleneck in this which is why we haven't scaled up the testing to the levels that have been promised. I think yesterday we still did around 6,000 tests. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, we need to be testing so many more people, especially our NHS staff. Once this is all over, have you considered where you'd like to visit in the world? Make a head start on plans by starting to learn a new language with Babbel. With 14 different languages, Babbel teaches through real-life conversations and is designed to get you speaking a different language quickly with 10 to 15-minute classes. Try Babbel today with the free app or at babbel.co.uk. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L lcouk or download the app to try for free. Babbel, learn a new language and make it your own. As well as the dramatic restrictions on daily life, Chancellor Rishi Sunak has been forced to take drastic economic measures to stop businesses and individuals going under as a result of the shutdown. He is expected to shortly address the gap in his plans uh, by revealing help for self-employed workers. But there are still questions about the government's policy of allowing construction workers and others to continue going to their jobs. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn used his final PMQs this week to highlight how the crisis is turning assumptions about workers in the economy on their head. Here he is. Crisis shows us, Mr Speaker, how deeply we depend on each other. We'll only come through this as a society through a huge collective effort. At a time of crisis, no one is an island. No one is self-made. The well-being of the wealthiest corporate chief executive officer depends on the outsourced worker cleaning their office. At times like this, Mr Speaker, we have to recognise the value of each other and the strength of a society that cares for each other and cares for all. Uh, Paul, uh, Rishi Sunap is winning a lot of plaudits, so they deserved. Well, let's be honest, it's first worth saying, if you're a Chancellor who's going to turn on the taps and increase borrowing massively and spend as much as it takes everybody's going to love you i mean that's that's not that's the easy bit so it's no surprise that actually in some sense people are, are welcoming what he's doing um but at the same time yeah and he's a good performer he's quite polished what i've been quite impressed by is in those press conferences he thinks on his feet a bit so he's not he's not scared of cutting across the prime minister if someone if he feels like he needs to intervene that kind of sense of self-assuredness i think is is quite useful but the the, the proof of the pudding really is in in the eating and you know self-employed is a really good example what surprised me there is not necessarily that they didn't have an immediate answer 
um, but that he didn't even think of addressing it originally. Um, um, and this is this is where actually a loyal opposition can make a, an impact. It's the same thing on renters and evictions, you know, that the government didn't even think, well, we'll t we're worried about ev renters, but we'll park that, we'll get round to it, we'll just address it later. They just didn't even mention it. Not even mentioning the self-employed, not even mentioning renters is actually a problem for Sunak, I think, because it comes back to not, are you a good technocrat, but what are your values are? Who, who are you representing? And um, the problem with me saying all that is that sort of thing that John should say. But um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 but there is a valid point, which is that, you know, Treasury officials are working damn hard to make, you know, uh, come up with policy solutions. And these are very, very complex, fast moving decisions they're having to make with long term impacts. So obviously there's a lot of sympathy for them. They're the people who are really, really, to be honest, on the front line at the moment is that those Treasury officials trying to make the numbers work. Yeah, John, one thing I found really interesting was not PMQs this week, but PMQs last week when Boris Johnson basically said, look, um, we're really, really willing to work cross-party, especially on some of this economic stuff. It was almost an admission that you guys in Labour have a better idea of where the gaps may be in in a kind of plan to rescue workers. Did you get, do you get that sense from your... I, I think that's an interesting observation. I mean, I should have said earlier in answer to your question about whether Labour were too slow. Well, I, I mean, I went back and looked at um, the, the Hansard contributions, and back in January, I was raising with Matt Hancock the need for specialist ECMO beds and then we've been continually throughout February and March before the whole world or no, let me rephrase that before, before the whole of the sort of Westminster village was obsessing or looking or watching coronavirus we were we were raising these issues when it was uh, an important you know an important issue but wasn't the dominant issue around beds and capacity and so on and then also we were starting to raise issues around sick pay and how people would cope if they if they had to take time off work particularly if they were in the gig economy uh, uh, and then, of course, in the last two weeks, I, I do think that particularly the economic package that John McDonnell published um, as a challenge to the government, I do think that uh, uh, focused minds in government and, real, uh, and made them realise uh, uh, that they did need to take some drastic action. What I think is quite extraordinary, really, is that, you know, we've probably had, what, three budgets in the last few weeks? Rishi <laughs> yeah. soon had yeah. a budget from three weeks ago. Yeah, which was briefed and all the, the headlines the next day was all about his big his big coronavirus budget and all this extra money just you know that well that just feels like a million years ago now it just doesn't feel like it was uh remotely as satisfactory as as uh, as needed so look i think i think you're right and the government are, are, are moving but they've still got they've still got a lot further to go particularly around the self-employed and around rent but they are they are they are they have put in some uh, they made some big decisions, uh, which I do think is because of the pressure that uh, uh, John McDonnell particularly has put them under. Uh, Rachel, um, we obviously Labour have been hammering at this self-employed angle and various people have, uh, even Tory MPs. But are there any other gaps, do you think, in Rishi Sunak's kind of economic rescue plan that, that need to be addressed, Rachel? Um, well, I think a lot of people, are, in terms of, this, of the package that we might see for the self-employed, they're concerned about the in any kind of income cap, because although it might look like if you're self-employed that you make a lot of money, but when you think about overheads and other payments that you have to make, you might not actually be that much. Um, a lot of people are concerned as well that when it comes to this package that the self-employed might not actually 
see that see anything until the end of May, which is a long time away. Um, there's also a lot of concern from a worker's point of view as to just this lack of clarity around what are essential services. Absolutely. Um, you know, you know, no, no one. I think the TUC in particular have said in the last couple of days, no one should be forced to work um, in a non-essential service. And there's, there's not much clarity around this at the moment. Um, and in terms of like, you know, nobody should be threatened with the sack if they're just following government advice. I think they want some, they want much more clear guidance from government on that. Um, yeah, John, do we need to ban all jobs that aren't being done by key workers now? Well, not, but, you know, ban work, people going to work unless it's a key worker role. I think we need clear instructions along those lines i mean i mean i posted a photo on my um uh, uh, twitter yesterday um uh, you know because you've got like obviously boris johnson saying he's putting an arm around all the, the workers yeah there's a i, I posted a picture from a picture from the center of my leicester constituency of a load of, of a building site where they're building student flats and obviously all the construction workers are really close up to each other because they've got to shift heavy heavy materials heavy equipment around the idea that they can stay six foot away from each other it's just for the birds i mean i know and i, and I don't understand why the ministers are not getting a grip of this i mean i watched the press conference and the advice was well they all need to stay two meters away from each other now and yeah, i know ministers turn up to building sites for photo opportunities in high-vis jackets and hard hats but i'm not sure if they spend any longer on building sites because it's not possible to, to, to do the work on a construction site unless you're close to each other because you've got to shift heavy heavy things around i mean those workers are being put at risk and of course they're putting others at risk and this really needs to be fixed as soon as possible and when you said we're getting more critical in our comments this is something we are really critical about people are confused and firms are forcing people to go to work who don't need to go to work and and it's all very well saying oh well you know you can work from home if you want to well you know we're lucky all of us here we can work at home on laptops or ipads you know we can do this plenty of people in the jobs market who can't work at home on a laptop and they've got and their employers are making them go to work and they're putting their own health at risk it's not fair it needs fixing yeah i i, I had a friend actually who walked out of his job this week because he was being forced to go in so uh, you know it brought it home to me for sure uh, john i wanted to ask you a kind of broader question do you think the government's response here massive borrowing massive spending i know it's a time of crisis but do you think it kind of changes what's possible or acceptable for future governments you know Corbyn's spending plans don't look so outlandish for critics now I, know, I mean I mean I I was uh, you know I did I did joke at one point our uh, the Labour manifesto now looks like an Adam Smith Institute pamphlet compared to <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, but in, in, uh, in all, in all I have, well I have to be careful when I'm making flipping comments these days don't I um um, um, um uh, uh, what I think we are facing, it does remind me of 2008. I was in Downing Street with Gordon Brown. I worked for Gordon Brown and I was in Downing Street in 2008. Uh, and it does remind me of that time. But why, but why this is different different, and more worrying and needs an even greater resolve from governments across the world is because it is, it is both an unprecedented global health crisis combined with an economic crisis. And the two reinforce each other. So you need to make these big economic decisions to safeguard your economy, but you also need international cooperation in order to deliver what we call health security. But unless, unless we do the economic measures, though, 
we run the risk of creating an unhealthy society in the future. Before this crisis erupted, uh, I was doing a lot of work around how poverty and deprivation uh, impacts on people's health. And I did an interview with Rachel on it and um, uh, did other interventions on it. And we know that economies where um, there is inequalities and more poverty, life expectancy tends to go backwards. So we need the economic investment now so that when we come through this, we can rebuild our economy because the future health of our country depends on us rebuilding the economy as well. Well, we've, we've talked about Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto there, but it was his final Prime Minister's questions this week. He bows out on April 4th, almost certainly to make way for Keir Starmer. Let's just hear Boris Johnson paying tribute to his opposite number of Prime Minister's questions. Mr Speaker, perhaps I could uh, begin by pointing out that this is the Right Honourable Gentleman's last uh, Prime Minister's questions, and it would be appropriate, I think, for me to pay tribute to uh, him uh, for his service to party and indeed to the country over the last four years in a very difficult job. Uh, we may not agree about everything, but no one can doubt his sincerity and his determination to build a better society. And I want to pay particular tribute and thanks to him and all his colleagues for their uh, cooperation in the current uh, emergency as far as possible across party lines. I... Uh, Paul, in the clip we just heard, Corbyn said he wasn't going anywhere. What do you think he means? Well, I think it's quite obvious. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is going to continue what he's done all his life, which is, you know, speak up for those issues that he, he feels strongly about. And I think he'll go back to being the backbencher that sort of uh, pushes the, the the envelope a bit. And you, you wouldn't expect him to do anything else, to be honest. I, I, he's the sort of MP who's going to be an MP, you imagine, for a long, long time. We'll have to carry him out in a box from Islington. Um, so... He's not, so, he's not going to do, a, I imagine, a, a Gordon Brown or a Tony Blair or, and, and just step aside. Ed Miliband is actually a, an interesting comparison. You know, he's still stayed on. He's decided to continue a political career. He's gone, he's gone down the wonk route, unsurprisingly, given it's Ed Miliband. So he's, he's, his main output in life is he's doing this, his own podcast. And we all love podcasts. And it, he's got this Reasons to be Cheerful podcast. Um, but I've got wonky, Paul. but you know what I mean and the interesting thing is that you know he's saying interesting things there because he feels he's got a bit more freedom to say them so he he's looking at big picture that's what Miliband's been doing and actually um, you know pandemics and stuff like that is actually big picture stuff that people haven't been looking at It's, it's Bill Gates of course who famously warned that a pandemic would be ruinous to the world economy just a few years ago and, and people thought oh well that's just a bit too sci-fi a bit too futuristic and look at it you know he's been vindicated so I think actually Corbyn the interesting thing will be what he does he, it, it feels to me as though he's going to be almost like an emeritus leader of the Labour Party almost like a presidential type figure in the in the background whoever is the Labour leader and let's be honest spoiler it's going to be Keir Starmer um, uh, when Keir Starmer does become Labour leader it and he gets up for BMQs, Corbyn will be there on the back benches hovering. And it'll be interesting to see just how Starmer manages that relationship. Um, one thing that I think will be interesting, and we can talk to John about this, I think John's job is pretty secure right now, actually. I think when Starmer comes in, he, the last thing you're going to be doing is changing your shadow health secretary who knows everything about this stuff in the crisis. So, John, just get worried in six months' time, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's six months. <laughs> <laughs> but the um... no, 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 no offense. <laughs> it was more about the virus than yours. <laughs> to, to, be, 
Let's <laughs> <laughs> no, go back to Corbin, and it's a serious point actually. Uh, Corbin, I thought was actually really good in PMQs this week. I know people have criticised him, um, but I thought as a valedictory address, those words he used, and I, I quoted them last night in the war zone. That line about the refuse workers, supermarket shelf stackers, delivery drivers, cleaners. All the people have been dismissed as low-skilled. And now everyone's beginning to realise, hey, we really need these people. And mm. um, I thought just having someone speak up in that way, quite a passionate way about those people, was actually quite um, dignified. Yeah, John, kind of on that, what do you think was Corbyn's biggest success and, and his biggest failure during <laughs> his time as leader? Uh, I think he is. Uh, I do, I do, uh, people teased him when he wrote, we won the argument. Uh, and you know, I can see why people tease him because we'd obviously just done very badly in a general election. But I think in some ways the argument has shifted and it's obviously shifted hugely now in the response to the coronavirus uh, crisis. But even before then, I think the debate had shifted because the, I mean, the Tories beat us and they then they really did beat us. I mean, I'm not denying that or get you know or trying to sugarcoat that. But they beat us by, yes, saying they'll get Brexit done, but by saying they're going to build 40 new hospitals, deliver 50,000 nurses and deliver, you know, 5,000 or no, 6,000 extra GPs. Their messaging wasn't about balancing the books and dealing with the deficit and tax cuts. They won on a, a message around expanding public services. Now, we can question their whether they are, um, whether they're, we can question their commitment on it and we can question whether they actually will deliver it. But in, in messaging terms, they, won on, they, they ran on messages which social democratic parties tend to run on. And I, so I think in that respect, he has shifted the debate. Back in the, in the 2015 leadership contest, Jeremy Corbyn was the only one who was prepared to say, we should get rid of the spending cap for public sector workers. I mean, the Tories were forced to get rid of the spending cap for public sector workers. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was the only one who was prepared to talk about putting up tax rates for big corporations, where the other contenders were talking about we needed to be closer to business. So I think he has won some intellectual arguments. But of course, uh, uh, while, the, while the Tories, to a certain extent, shapeshift, which is what they've done throughout their history, which is why they're the most successful electoral party in the world, historically. Uh, uh, we lost a general election and we lost it massively. And, you know, we can't get away from that. We can't pretend we didn't. And, you know, I'll be for, I'm still devastated to this day that I'm not the health secretary. I'm still the shadow health secretary. And whether I'll still be the shadow health secretary, Paul, uh, um, I will see. On that, Rachel, it's a weird time for Keir to start, isn't it? Uh, it yeah, and completely. Just If he has spent his life wanting to be the Labour Party leader, then um, you can't imagine that he has ever, ever envisioned that these would be the circumstances in which it would come to him. Um, but I also kind of think that he's been handed something of a, a blank slate going forward. And I think that the, the government will be judged on um, the country's recovery, the country's economic recovery from the coronavirus crisis. And I wonder if if after that time we might have a reckoning for all of the austerity then, 
you know, when people look back and think about how maybe our economy wasn't as resilient as it could have been if there hadn't been so many cuts previously. Um, and I just think Kia has, um, he can kind of start to own ground going forward. It's not necessarily the worst time for the for the leadership to come to him, I think. And, and he also can establish the party as uh, a serious party, uh, whereas it probably under Jeremy has, has not been seen as that way by everyone. Yeah, John, as we've talked about throughout this uh, podcast, it, you guys are trying to be kind of constructive opposition at the moment. That, does that make it harder for an incoming new leader to, to no, kind I, of mark, mark himself out? I think, I think the challenge for the new leader are, uh, is actually going to be practical issues. I mean, Parliament won't be sitting. Uh, um, the, um, the, 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 the sort of daily press conferences tend to dominate the, the news cycle. I mean, obviously, a new leader of the opposition is going to get some publicity and there's going to be interest in what a new leader of the opposition says. But I think, I think you know, in the, in the very short term, it's going, to be, it's going to be very practical things. I mean, usually, a new leader of the opposition gets interest in their shadow cabinet. You know who they appoint shadow chancellor etc 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 because it's it's interesting if new new personalities are brought in and people like to do the analysis of what this means and the direction of the party um uh, i just fear and wonder whether there'll be less interest in that i mean i'm sure there might be a, you know a few blogs here and there but it probably won't be the dominant political news in the way it would be in another set of circumstances so i think i think the challenge for a new leader is going to be all these practical things about how do they just get the, the, the country to take note of them when everybody is quite understandably and rightly focused on coronavirus. I but think actually it, it will yeah. be interesting to see just what sort of airtime Keir Starmer gets because obviously when he gets that weekend next weekend when he does get elected he's, he's going to get a fair bit of airtime. but even that will be overshadowed whatever is the latest news on coronavirus i do think there actually there, there might be surprising upside to all this which is the um for, for the labor leadership which is that actually uh, there's been so much focus on parliament and votes um it, up until the last few years that actually the big worry, I think, amongst many Labour MPs is like, we've got no way we can actually punch the government. We're, we're no way we're ever going to win a vote again, this parliament. There's no way it's out of the question. Now, it's possible in this new landscape, first, you might be able to pick off 40 Tories that you need for things like self-employment, uh, if that doesn't go far enough. If I think other things that where the, there's a sort of common interest between Labour and, and some of those Tory rebels. But more importantly, it's not about votes. It's going to be about getting your voice on the media and standing back, making a big speech and choosing your moment to actually say something significant. And Starmer's been pretty good at that in the leadership campaign so far. He's stood back. He hasn't criticised the government all the time. He's chosen his moment strategically to say something uh, and then said it. And, and a bit like John said earlier, you want to pick your moment. You want to pick your issue. You don't want to be seen as carping. You want to be seen as being consensual. But at the same time, you want to be seen as forceful. And I suspect Starmer over the next few months, his big challenge is to say, right, here's my big speech. This matters. And I'm going to make waves because actually I'm capturing a public mood. And I'm not just saying this for a cheap shot of the government. And if he can ride the right bits of those waves, 
it could be quite interesting. Don't forget, every opposition leader is defined really within their first six months. Every single politician is the same like that. You know, IDS, everybody knew what was going to happen thereafter. Um, Haig was the same. Uh, Corbyn, to be frank, you know, is, is a slight exception to the rule very early on. You knew he wasn't going to change, but actually he entered two different general elections with two different outcomes. I think with Starmer, though, uh, it may well be, and it's a bit of a cliche now, that if he can actually present himself a bit Clement Attlee-ish, you know, the steady as she goes, solid, competent performer, an alternative in terms of just stylistically and temperamentally from this flamboyant, swashbuckling prime minister, that might capture the mood. And maybe more than anything else, more than policy or anything else, that sense of a different personality might be what actually really helps Dharma. Right, I think it's time for the quiz. Uh, and since it was Jeremy Corbyn's final PMQs as opposition leader this week, this quiz is all about PMQs. So uh, <laughs> just shout the answer. There's no real rules, John. Just shout the answer if you know it, uh, and I'll dish out points uh, arbitrarily. Um, so first question, when did PMQ switch from being two 15-minute sessions on Tuesdays and Thursdays to a single 30-minute session on Wednesdays? And who instigated the change? So I'm looking for the year and the person. Nice. Was it Tony Blair? Yeah. Tony Blair. When we got yeah. I, John was in there first. He knew, he knew it. So <laughs> I'm giving that to John. It's 1-0, John. <laughs> well done. Uh, uh, PMQs has in the past been suspended at times of national or personal tragedy or crisis. When was the last time this happened and why? God. Um... Uh, I remember, well, I do remember one when um, when we were in Downing Street with, with Gordon and uh, it was very sadly the day that David Cameron's son passed away. Wasn't that, wasn't that's, that's, that's the one. That's correct. Uh, was, were tributes paid or was it... Um, or, think, or was it a suspension of the commons, I think? I think. Yeah, for half an hour. Um, final question. Um, who missed a higher proportion of PMQ sessions, Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair? Must be Thatcher. Who, who missed more, yeah. I think it's Thatcher. Yeah, it's Thatcher. All right. She, she missed 7.7% of her PMQs, while Blair missed 5%. I, I, I mean... One of the things that I thought Jeremy just on this PMQ thing raised really well yesterday was the fact that Boris Johnson actually hasn't come to Parliament and done a statement to Parliament on the coronavirus. I mean, I cannot imagine Tony Blair not coming to Parliament at the time of Iraq or Gordon Brown at the time of to, you know, the financial crisis or indeed Theresa May throughout all the different Brexit uh, shenanigans coming to make a full statement to Parliament. And I am, um, I'm surprised he's not done that, actually. You would have expected the Prime Minister to come and make a statement and be questioned by from MPs. Uh, and I think Jeremy Corbyn was correct to highlight that yesterday. Well, um, on that note, unfortunately, that's all we have time John for. John wins the quiz. Uh, John wins the quiz. Sorry, yes. Oh, right. <laughs> you had a right. John. You were, yeah. <laughs> we, we were in quiz mode and you went into main podcast mode. But uh, yes, you've Sorry. won. Two, Sorry. Two, two, one. <laughs> Two one zero, John. Well done. Congratulations. Paul's rarely defeated, so you should you should take that with you this weekend. <laughs> Barry beats Watchdale again. Oh, oh. <laughs> Can I just put out Barry don't exist anymore? <laughs> in Leicester now anyway, so <laughs> Well, they're definitely beating Rochdale, Leicester. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests, uh, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. 
And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Um, we'll just leave you with one man's inside story of the government's secret coronavirus plan. So just so you know, um, my sister, her boyfriend's um, brother works for the Ministry of Defence and one of the things that they're doing to prepare, and this won't affect London, this will be everywhere, they're basically worried that people are going to get stuck indoors without any food. So one of the things that they're doing is they're actually working on making a massive lasagna. Um, so they're actually, at the moment as we speak, they're building like the massive lasagna sheets um, and they're just going to start making the layers um, today. Uh, and then hopefully, like, obviously put the put the bolognese on and then put the sheets on top. But they're having to make the special sheets, obviously, because they've not got one big enough because they're making lasagna the size of Wembley Stadium. So how they're doing it is they're actually putting the, the underground heating at Wembley. That's going to, like, bake the lasagna, and then they're going to put the roof across, so it's like a recreate an oven. Um, and then what they're going to do is they're going to, like, carry that. Um, they've got loads of drones, and they're going to, like, lift it up with the drones, and they're going to, like like cut off little portions and like drop them into people's houses um just so they make sure everyone's eating still and no one dies which is obviously quite sensible but yeah i think i'm looking forward to that because i do quite like lasagna as well Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.